Let us pray. Lord God, we bless you and thank you for the gift of your word. And grant me, your servant, both the humility and the boldness to preach it. Prepare our hearts and lives to be strengthened and changed by it. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm starting again this new series on discipleship. And the lesson today is from the Gospel of Luke, the 14th chapter, verses 25 through 35. Listen now to the Word of God. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Brothers and sisters, let those who have ears hear now the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And again, as I said, this is the first in a series of messages on Christian discipleship. In general, Jesus obviously wanted to make disciples. He wanted to win disciples. He said, for example, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. And that's from Luke 19.10. Now in the parable of the Great Supper, another example, Jesus had just told this parable to the Pharisees before this passage. And in that parable, the master of the house had sent his servants into the streets of the city to invite the poor the crippled, the lame, and the blind. (coughs) They were to go out wherever they were and to make them come. The feast was prepared and there was room for them. There was still room for them. And so Jesus also commands his followers in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so the disciples go out and they make other disciples. Great multitudes were following Jesus at this time. (coughs) Excuse me. They had no understanding that their leader, Jesus, was to die on a Roman cross. Jesus wanted that the crowds who went with him would become not crowds of fans or crowds of 
people who just wanted what he could give them at that time, but he wanted crowds of disciples. And so he was so honest in that, that he would (coughs) make it clear to them the terms of the discipleship, even if even if that resulted in offending many of them and causing them to leave his side. And we know that is what happened. He, his popularity poll went down considerably as a result of his honesty. Now, what are Jesus' terms of discipleship? Well, first, loyalty to the Lord must come before all other loyalties. And as I've implied, Jesus was not a very good politician. I mean, we all know from watching debates and hearing speeches and watching ads, politicians try to please people, or at least enough people to get elected. Well, Jesus, on the other hand, what did he do? He said to the multitude, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's fair to say those words are not calculated to win over a lot of people. Now, we do need to understand them in context, though. Critics, then and now, infidel critics, have condemned Jesus as one who would have abolished all natural ties and would have trampled the noblest human affections. And certainly there are cults that may do that, cult leaders who uh, call upon you to abandon those you love. But it's a little different. You see, the Galilean fishermen and the common people of the time certainly understood what Jesus meant far better than his learned critics then and now. Someone who treated his mother as tenderly as Jesus did, he made sure that she was going to be cared for when he was dying in agony on the cross. He also commanded love to all. He reached out to people in love and compassion. So certainly Jesus was not advocating what we understand as hatred towards one's loved ones. Hate is here a relative term. And I know we think, how can that be a relative term? Well, here it is. Jesus affirmed that while human love for spouses and parents and siblings is good and noble, after all, he did not contravene the law of God. What does the law say? Honor your father and mother. He did not contradict that. But he said that the love that one should have for him is so strong that it would make the noblest of human emotions seem negative by comparison. And if we look at other texts, we can understand why the word hate is used relatively here. There is a parallel passage in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy worthy of me. And that's how we should understand these words in Luke. Now, that's also a pretty hard saying. It can be hard to hear that you should love somebody less than God. I mean, I guess intellectually we can understand that, but it's hard to say that our love for our children, our love for our parents, our love for our spouses should be somehow less than something else. We should also consider that Jesus is being is likely referring to those who used family ties as an excuse from following him. And I'll develop that in a few minutes, that concept. But certainly saying I cannot do this or that because my family ties hold me back 
that can be a bad excuse for not following the Lord. And so what Jesus is saying is that no natural affection is to stand between a disciple and loyalty to Christ. You know, when Jesus called James and John, the sons of Zebedee, to leave their fishing business and become fishers of men, what did they do? They immediately left their boat and their fishing business behind. They left their father behind and they followed Jesus. Countless numbers of people since then have heard the call of Jesus and have left behind their livelihood and families as well because they were called to do so. Now, not everyone called to follow Jesus is called to follow Jesus in that way. But nonetheless, there are times when that happens. It's reported that a man who became an eminent pastor and even a seminary president accepted his position by saying, I offer to you undivided second place in my heart. The first is reserved for Jesus Christ. And indeed, we can trust in someone's love, even if it is second place love, if that person has first place love for the Lord. I want to say something else about family ties. And I think we all understand this, although it can be hard to put into practice when we are in the middle of the situation. But nonetheless, we must never allow a family member to influence us to do what is wrong. And Jesus is getting at that too. Now, we know very fortunately many people, most of the people here I think, belong to families or belong to families that encourage them to accept the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, and also to act in a Christ-like manner to other people. But there are people, and I'm sure we know them and we know of them, who, for them, life is a battle to do what is right because of their circumstances. There's a Christian woman who once said to her pastor, Pastor, my husband tells me that if I will not go to the tavern and drink with him, he will find a woman who will. Negative influence, a horrible situation to be in. And then a young mother told her pastor, It looks as if my husband is going to make me choose between him and Jesus Christ. And she continued, I told him, I love you better than any person in all this world. But if you force me to choose between you and loyalty to the Lord, I will have to choose the Lord. And so she took her stand. Now, the story does not end there. Some weeks later, the husband, who worked as a telephone lineman, had a problem at work. He was hemorrhaging, and he had to go to the hospital. And he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Through many months, his wife lovingly nursed him back to health, and in her love and compassion, she won him to Jesus Christ. And we have to ask, has a wife ever won a husband to Christ by compromise? And I think vice versa as well. She showed the wonderful Christian virtues because she was loving and compassionate and kind to her husband, but she also made it clear that she would never compromise her faith in Jesus Christ, even if it meant giving him up. So we've been hearing about loyalty to the Lord and how it must come before our affections for other people. And that is certainly true, that loyalty to the Lord must come before our own desires. Jesus says in uh, Luke 
14.27, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And in Matthew he says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And indeed, going back to Luke 14, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now Jesus, and I've said this before, Jesus is on the one hand remarkably inclusive, but on the other he is remarkably exclusive too. He is inclusive in this way. He is giving a universal invitation to people to come and follow him. He isn't restricting the offer to follow him based on a person's race or gender or ethnicity or position in life or wealth or nationality or anything like that. But when he invites them, he is inviting them to deny themselves and take up their crosses. And his true disciples will be seen by those who respond positively to that invitation. He doesn't just give salvation to anyone. He will grant salvation to those who have shown by their actions that they truly follow him. Now, he talks about taking up a cross, taking up your cross. And a cross, of course, is the instrument on which Jesus was crucified. And certainly, it is an instrument of death. It signifies death. And in our case, it signifies death to the old life that we had. The unregenerated self, the old self, the the person of the flesh, is to be put on the cross. Sin is anything contrary to God's will. And repentance means to change one's mind from whatever one has been thinking to what God thinks about sin. Meaning, we may have our own ideas about what is right and wrong, but we are to put those aside when they contradict or conflict with the Word of God. The Word of God is the ultimate authority for our lives. We're not the ultimate authority. The Word of God and God is. And so we are to hate sin and turn away from it. Jesus also asks us that we commit ourselves to all that is right. In other words, we turn away from what is wrong and we turn to what is right. Come after me, he calls. And forsaking all that he has does not necessarily mean that we are to sell all of our goods and become paupers. That would generally be poor stewardship. Um, It can be hard to apply the teachings of Jesus Christ to our economic system. On the one hand, Jesus calls us to be self-sacrificing, and he calls upon us to help those who have less. But at the same time, in order to help those who have less, somebody has to generate the wealth and the goods and the prosperity to make that happen. And so, I suppose it's a constant process of discernment. But good stewardship is very important. And good stewardship means that we acknowledge God as the owner of life and all that we have, and that we are the stewards of it. And disciples are to use their lives and possessions which belong to God in accordance with the will of the owner. Life is to be put at God's disposal to be used as he directs. Here, for example, what Jesus says in Matthew 6.33 and 22.38-40. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
end. And this is the first and great. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now Jesus is, of course, not seeking false disciples. This means that he's not looking for people who make a shallow emotional response, as illustrated, for example, by the the seed with no depth of root, who, when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. That's Matthew 13, 21. Jesus also does not seek a half-hearted response. And the illustration for that is the seed choked by thorns, which symbolize the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. That's Matthew 13, 22. Similarly, Jesus does not seek those who claim to be his followers, but in reality are unregenerate. And that's illustrated by the man who came to the wedding, but did not put on the wedding garment. And that's actually discussed in Matthew chapter 22, but I'm not going to go over that in detail. Jesus does seek those who count the cost, who weigh the issues, and then accept him with a commitment that is heart deep and lifelong. And there are two parables that, or two verses that um, emphasize the a few verses that emphasize the importance of carefully weighing the issues. And they're included in today's lesson. Verses 28 and 29 say, well, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. And this means, this would mean to his listeners that anyone who contemplates building a tower, which could mean a watchtower in one's vineyard, does well to consider the cost and his resources so that he will not start what he cannot finish. Because really, seeing a half-finished tower is going to be no use to anybody. And it'll just be a waste of time and effort. And then verses 31 and 32 Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And so a king contemplating going to war ought to take full account of all the factors before he commits himself and his men to a battle he cannot win. And if we were to come up with a modern-day example, you know, it's been said that the um, time right before D-Day, the pivotal invasion of France in World War II by the Western Allies, uh, it was a near-run thing because the weather was so bad, and then the weather briefly cleared. And, you know, the decision to go ahead or not go ahead came down on the head of one man, Dwight D. Eisenhower. And can you imagine what it must have been like to be in his position to consider, do we go or do we not go? I mean, if we don't go, who knows when we'll get another chance, but if we go and we fail, what calamitous consequences? There's no doubt that um, Eisenhower very, very carefully considered the potential cost. And it was a wonderful thing. You know, there was a different era, of course, but um, it was a wonderful thing that President Roosevelt offered such a wonderful, heartfelt prayer for the success of the mission as well. And it's 
I believe personally that God heard that prayer and guided that invasion. But in any case, I digress. Now, as important as that decision was, or as important as even building a tower might be for some people, the most important thing, the most important decision that we must consider is becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so we weigh all the issues, and we remember, however, that one plus God equals a majority. If we will be on the side of God, we shall prevail. Uh, And Paul wrote in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, let's, those are very important words to remember because when you turn to Jesus Christ, it is possible that family and friends may turn against you. There is a cost to discipleship. And so can you stick to your commitment to Christ in the face of adversity? Personal adversity, perhaps it's bad for your career. We know in other countries it can be bad for your physical safety. Do you stick to Christ in the face of adversity? If you really stick with him, though, you can depend on God to give you the strength to persevere. Now, that doesn't mean that God is going to simply wipe away all of the tribulation. God never promises that, but God does promise to give us what we need to get through the tribulation. So to conclude, it really is a strange paradox, isn't it? that we confront when we consider these words from Jesus, and this is from Matthew 10.39, whoever finds his life will will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, the finest investment that you can make in your life is to turn your entire life over to Jesus Christ. That is an investment in joy and in usefulness. Have you ever known a dedicated Christian, a real Christian, who is not joyful about being a Christian. Paul said, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And so, having a true relationship with Jesus Christ, being his disciple, means having that confidence and hope that Paul expressed. And what a great, incredible blessing that is in your life. So here now, these words of acclamation to Jesus Christ who loves us and frees us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom priests of his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.